Well, if you could ask God one question right now that you knew he would give you a direct answer, what would you ask? We'd all have some questions. Uh, Some of you I know well enough to know that your questions would be very strange. But I'd wager that the most asked question that we would all uh, ask him would be this. Why is there so much evil in the world today? See, the problem of evil is a, a question that theologians have, have wrestled with and written about for a long time. It's one of the most asked questions that a pastor gets, and it makes sense. We see a good God and lots of evil. How does that happen? But maybe a better question is this. Why is God so faithful to such unfaithful creatures? Why should we have anything when we've celebrated our rebellion against him? See, this passage that we're studying in Genesis 17 is all about God's faithfulness. It's really about the story of of God's faithfulness to, to Abraham or Abram. God has been faithful throughout history, even when we haven't been. Now, I'm reminded of the hymn based on Lamentations 3.23, Great is thy faithfulness. You know the hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. This reminds me of what's happening in Genesis chapter 17, where God shows us his faithfulness. It also shows that God has set his people apart. He's made them different. And can I tell you this? Today, God is still faithful, and God still sets apart his people. Maybe not in the exact same way, but we are still a people set apart for God's purposes Thousands of years before, God had this in his mind of what he would do here today in us. And he gave us this passage, this chapter of Genesis as a way to show us, to say, you, those of you who have faith, you are set apart. You're different. Different from the world, different from those outside of the faith. You are a set apart people. So let's dive into this text. There's a couple strange things happening here, uh, as we've seen. It seems like the entire story of, of Abram up to this point has been one long, strange story. It's, it's, it's these, these weird things are happening, tortures going through split animals and all sorts of weird stuff, but they, it all points us to a bigger purpose. It all points us to Christ. And in verses 1 and 2, God appears to Abram when he's 99 years old. Now, even for today, 99, living to be 99 is a pretty big feat. It's an accomplishment that most of us won't ever see. And so keep that in mind. He's old, he's 99, but it's also been 13 years since God has last spoken to him. At least based on what we see here. And what does God speak about? Well, he reminds Abram of the covenant that he's made with him. The covenant was made 25 years before this moment. 
Now, I don't know about you, but 25 years to me is a really long time. And think about where you were 25 years ago. I was still in high school, horrible memories. For mostly for my teachers. But put yourself in Abram's shoes for, for a moment. His life since God first spoke to him has been a series of ups and downs, followed by even more ups and downs. But the main arc throughout this story has been God's covenant. I'd actually say that's the, the main arc throughout the entire Bible is God's covenant, uh, but here it certainly is. And it's been 25 years, though. Think about how you've changed in 25 years. For me, it was high school. Maybe you weren't married yet. Maybe you didn't have kids yet. Maybe you were, you were still growing up. Maybe you weren't even born yet. 25 years is a long time. And it's an especially long time when you're waiting for something to happen. When I was a kid, my dad, um, I used to have these conversations in the car with him. As I, and I noticed this when I was six or seven years old. I said, when I'm looking forward to something, it seems like it takes forever. But when I get a spanking or something, it seems like it's right there. Like I can't get away from it. And, and the truth is, is that when we're waiting for something to happen, something good, it seems like it's so far away. And when Abram, Abram was promised an heir, a child, that he would be the father of many nations, and that promise took 25 years, he's just waiting. It's a long time. And we know from chapter 17, or 16, excuse me, that, that Abram and Sarai tried to move it forward a little faster. They tried to push it along that God's timing was not good enough for them, so they tried to push God a little quicker, get this done, we've waited a long time. They made a mess of things. Their abuse of Hagar is hideous and has caused pain for thousands of years. But he's still waiting. And with every single day, he feels like we do, that his opportunity is dwindling. He's 99. Hagar is pretty, but she's 90. It's not childbearing ages. But as we've seen through the first 16 chapters of Genesis, really the entire Bible tells us this, that God can do things that we cannot. Human wisdom says that this can't happen, this can't work. He's too old, she's too old. Promise is done, it's over, it's too far gone. God says, no, I can do this. And in verse 1, God calls himself almighty. The Hebrew word is, is one that you've likely heard. It's El Shaddai. In using this word, God was proclaiming his power, his sovereignty, and his omnipotence, meaning that he knows everything and he is over everything, including a barren womb, including the loneliness that Abram must have been feeling, the guilt. Pastor Kent Hughes Longtime pastor at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, wrote this about this passage. He says this, God was saying, I'm able to fulfill the awesome hopes that I have set before you of a people in the land. There is no need to let go of the promise because of your old age. There is no need to succumb to passive desperation. There is no need to scale down the promise to match your puny thoughts. No need to resort to fleshly expedience. No need of trying to fulfill the promise in any second-rate way. Everything, all of your life, all your future lies in this, I am God Almighty. 
That's what's happening here. God is saying, you are nothing in comparison to me. You tried all of these things. You've tried to accomplish this on your own. I am God. I am able and able alone to do these things in your life. There's nothing, nothing that Abram could do to fix his situation. In fact, when he tried to fix it, he just messed things up. God made the covenant with him. And remember what we saw last chapter with that torch going down between the split animals, that it was a one-sided covenant. It was God's covenant with him. Abram's only responsibility at this point was to have faith and wait. But my goodness, isn't that one of the hardest things we do? It's to have faith and just to wait. In these two verses, God reminds Abram of this covenant. The previous chapter shows us that Abram forgot sometimes this covenant. He had forgotten that God's promises always come true, and we are so guilty of this. Could you wait 25 years for God to do something in your life? I think the older you get, the more you realize, you, you become more patient, and you, you realize that, yeah, I could probably do that, but, but most of us would not want to wait 25 years for anything. Truth is, is that maybe you're going to wait the rest of your life, and you'll never see the good come out of a situation. What if God's promises to you never come this side of heaven? Some of you are here today and you've lived a hard life, whether it's your fault or someone else's, that, that the difficulties that you're facing are so incredibly difficult that all you want is just a break. You just want some kind of separation from your circumstances. You know that God promises eternal life to all who believe, but every day seems like it's worse than the last. Your life may be difficult, and the truth is, and, and here, I'm not trying to make you upset, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but, but we see this throughout history and throughout Christianity, that your life may never get better. You may never experience release from whatever it is that's ailing you. Yes, you have a better perspective. Yes, you have a, a different view on life, but your life may be full of suffering and sorrow. We know that hundreds of thousands of Christians living in North Korea right now fear for their lives. Most don't have a church like we do to help prop them up when they struggle. They live in fear that if they're caught, they're guaranteed a life in a prison camp or death. What about the Christians in Afghanistan who face the, the worst possible punishment that we can think of for being a Christian? What about the Christians in Somalia who are hunted down like animals? Someone who trusts in Christ in one of those places is putting a target right on their back. At best, their families will disown them. At worst, they'll be tortured and murdered. And we eat up books like Your Best Life Now. Hand one, hand one of those Christians that book and see what happens. Their life may never get better the call to Christ means that we may die for his sake. And it's been estimated that there are 70 million Christians who have been martyred for their faith in 2,000 years. Their lives weren't improved by any worldly standard. Every single day of their life was defined by struggling, fear, and pain. Most of us wouldn't want to wait 25 years 
It's a long time. We're blessed to have almost anything delivered to our door with a, a tap on your phone. Within a matter of hours or days, we can access information and entertainment in a matter of seconds. All that's improved our lives. I'm grateful for those things. I'm grateful to make my life just a little bit easier. But it's also caused us to lose the art of waiting. To be honest, 25 years sounds to me like a sentence of torture. What would you have been thinking over 25 years? Would you have lost faith? Abram believed, but it's hard for me to think that he didn't have questions about this, of what's going on. God, God, what are you doing right now? Why hasn't this happened? I'm 99. I've outlived all the people that I know. And yet I'm still, still, still supposed to bear a child. But God reminds Abram in verses 1 and 2 that he alone is sovereign and that the covenant has not changed. Abram may have forgotten, but God did not. And that would be my message if I were to sit down with these North Korean or Somalian or Afghani believers. I'd say that God has not forgotten you. God will never forget his people. While we may not likely be suffering persecution for our faith, each one of us has gone through or is currently going through a very difficult time. Every single one of us. It's a, it's a trait of, of, of sinful people, people who have uh, dealt with loss and suffering as a result of the fall. Now, I don't want to compare what you're going through right now to people who are getting their heads chopped off thousands of miles away, but the truth is that suffering is relative. Pain is relative. And just because you don't have the threat of death over your head every day does not mean you can't suffer, because you do. The message to you is the same that I'd give to those suffering, persecuted believers. God is faithful. He keeps his word. Cling to Jesus. The promise that God makes with Abram will find its ultimate fulfillment, and that's what we look for. We look to that ultimate fulfillment in Christ. It's a good reminder for all of us that God doesn't work on our timeline, and he never has once taken his eyes off of his people. You may be going through something like Abram did, where you can't figure out what in the world God's doing. Nothing makes sense. It's difficult, difficulty after difficulty after difficulty, and every day is awful, and you can't get any respite. And you don't know where to turn. You have no idea where to turn. And the truth is, like I said before, it may never get better. You may suffer for years and years. But we cling to the promise in Christ. We cling that Jesus is stronger than cancer. That Jesus is stronger than disease and death and suffering and pain. We cling to the same promise that Abram held on to. The promise of faith, the promise that it will get better. It may not get better this side of heaven, but it will. So we've seen God speak these words of encouragement to Abram. And then in verses 3 through 8, we see a name change. And if you've been wondering where Abram becomes Abraham, here it is. Josh was telling me that the kids upstairs keep bugging him. When is he going to be Abraham? When is he going to be Abraham? Well, here, here you go. None of you would do that, I'm certain. Starting in verse 3, then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. 
No longer shall your, your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between you, me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The name Abram means father of many. It seems fitting, doesn't it? But God then changes his name to Abraham. It's a slight change. Even in the Hebrew, it's just one letter difference. The meaning of the name doesn't change much either, but it's an important change nonetheless. Abram means father of many. Abraham means father of many nations. There's a difference. Now, Abraham hearing this probably would have said, gosh, wouldn't it have been better for me to be called lonely, childless? Because that describes the situation that I'm in right now. Uh, but, but how could I be called father of many when I've had one, and that was a, a bad situation to begin with, but, but now I'm supposed to father many nations when I can't even father the promised one. But rather than giving Abraham a name that makes sense, God makes his name even bigger. He's not just the father of many, he's the father of many nations. It was stunning that God would change his name to this. The promised son had still not yet come. Throughout the Bible, we've seen that God works through our weaknesses. God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. He works differently because he is God and we are not. But this name change is strange, but it's not the only one we see in the Bible. Think through those name changes that you've seen. Jacob gets changed to Israel. Simon becomes Peter. And Revelation 2.17 says that your name will be changed too. Let me read this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Christian, you are a new creation. Made new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Every Christian is stamped, labeled with a new name, the name of Jesus. So we belong to him, and our name is changed by God. This is so important to see that God's ways, if you piece things together when you start reading Genesis through Revelation and you read it as one whole book written by one author, the Holy Spirit, you start to see that things are so interwoven and interconnected. You start to see these things pieced together that it's not accidental. It's not happenstance. Pastor and writer Sam Storms has a great quote about this name change. It's a lengthy quote, but it's from an article that he wrote, so I, I think you might find it helpful. He says this, this isn't to say that the old or original name given to us by our parents or, to the, or by the world is evil or to be casually discarded. Rather, one's name, at least in biblical times, typically signified or pointed to one's character or calling or function. Today, we name our children for altogether different reasons. Perhaps we hope their name will inspire confidence and power, so we have a son named Gregory rather than Gomer, with all apologies due to those who are actually named Gomer, or a daughter Melissa rather than Miniola, and he writes that he can get away with that since Miniola was his grandmother's name. 
Others select names based on what's fashionable or what rhymes. Some, as myself, are named after grandparents or to reflect a biblical truth. Carissa comes from the, the Greek word for grace and Sophia from the Greek word for wisdom, just to cite two examples. But in biblical days, a person's name was more than simply a label to differentiate them from others. A person didn't simply have a name, a person was his name. Name ideally reflected nature. All this to say that God will rename each of us in accordance with the transformation of our nature into the likeness of his son to reflect the new and altogether unique identity each has received by grace and the irrevocable destiny we have in Christ. My new name, like yours, will reflect the character of the new creation in which I am a participant as over against the old or original creation corrupted by sin and death. My new name, like yours, will be suitable to the new heavens and the new earth in which I'll dwell a place devoid of evil and error. We're all given new names, just like Abram. So we've seen God speaking so far and God giving Abraham his new name. And then in verses 9 through 14, we see the institution of the covenant sign for Abraham and his descendants. For the first time, God gives Abraham something to do in relation to the covenant. Circumcision was this sign. Let's read these verses. Starting in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. For years... I wondered, what in the world, why this? Of all things that God could have picked, why circumcision as a sign? It's a very strange thing. And the truth is, what happens to a, a male baby now is just a matter of choice, really. But there are differences between our lives in, in, in night, or 2021 and, and the passage of Scripture thousands of years before. There are differences here. And there are two reasons why I think God chose circumcision. First, it was a permanent cutting away of the flesh and a sign of the covenant for those who should not be putting their trust in the flesh. The skin that was removed was not essential for living, but then you wonder, well, why didn't God command a hunk of the arm or a hunk of the leg being removed? Well, this leads to the second reason. Because of where the circumcision occurs, it was a reminder of the seed of Abraham. I'm not going to go into graphic detail, but circumcision removes a piece of the male's anatomy that is essential for reproduction. It's essential for having a child. Now remember back to the last chapter where Abram and Sarai got themselves into trouble by pushing God's timeline a little faster. Sarai gave Hagar over to Abraham to be used as a baby factory. And again, without being too graphic, a hunk of flesh from the arm or leg wouldn't suffice here because it had to do something with reproduction. Something else to notice here is found in verse 14. It says this, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
Now, some heard this command established and would have believed that the act of circumcision alone is what brings people into the covenant family. Many still believe this today, but the act doesn't do it. Faith is the only thing that can bring someone into the covenant of God. But a rejection of circumcision was a rejection of the covenant. Since then, many Jews have put more trust in the sign of the covenant, circumcision, rather than the God of the covenant. And the truth is, is that I think we're just as guilty in a lot of ways, is that, that there are religious duties or religious acts that we do that we say, well, you have to do this in order to be a believer. There are people who believe that you must be baptized in order to be saved. They're putting more hope in the act, in the sign, than they are in the actual change of heart. So this leads to the question of whether or not we're tied to this anymore. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law if you're circumcised. If you're going to buy into that, then you better keep all the law, and we know that no one can do that. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's a simple answer. You're free to do it or not. You're not tied to this passage. It doesn't make anybody any closer just as much as any act of religiosity makes one closer to God. It doesn't. The only thing that brings us into the right covenant, the right communion with God, is faith by God's grace. So then we see in verses 15 and 16, we see the promise of a son and a name change for Sarai, another name change. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. She was about 90 years old. How absurd is it? For them to rest for 20 years on a promise that when they get into their 90s, they're going to conceive a child. But this is all part of God's sovereign plan, even if it seemed foolish to everyone else. And the truth be told, what we do and what we believe now is still seen as foolish by people who are not part of our fold. You come and you sing and you give time and money and you pray to a God you can't see and you love people who are sometimes unlovable. How does that work? That's weird. That's strange. Yes, it is. We do it because God works in these ways. But not only does God promise that the son will come through Sarai, he gives her a new name. Abram became Abraham and now Sarai would be called Sarah. Just like Abraham, it's a change of one Hebrew letter, but the meaning is huge. Sarai means my princess or my lady for one family. Sarah means lady or princess, and that's for a multitude. Now, all of this stuff is happening. This is pretty quick. All of this stuff is happening, that, that, that God talks and Abraham talks and, 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 and the command to, to, to remove the foreskin and all of these things are happening. And then Abram responds, or Abraham responds in 17 and 18. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I don't see his laughter as being weakness. I 
think he was just having a hard time figuring out how this is all going to work. How do I know that, God, that he didn't laugh at God or doubt him? Romans 4, 17 through 21 says this, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead since he was 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Abraham had faith. Was it perfect? Of course not. And so we may think, and we may leave here thinking, well, if I waver in my faith, if I question things, or if I doubt, if I have these doubts or concerns about the faith, does that mean that I'm somehow removed from the covenant? Absolutely not. Because I think Abraham gives us these ideas, these signs that he can have doubts. He wonders. He asks God these questions. But do you remember, there's a difference between asking God questions and questioning God. Abraham was just asking, how is this going to happen? You may be asking the same thing. You're sitting there in your situation thinking, how am I going to get out of this? How is there any solution to what problems that I'm facing right now? Because it may seem like dead ends to you. But we trust that God has a plan for all of this, even our suffering, even our pain. Finally, in verses 23 through 27, excuse me, through 19 and through 22, God repeats his promise again. God says this, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with, with him, God went up from Abraham. God reminds him that he will have a son over and over. God's saying this, the promise is through you. I promise that I will provide you a son. And he says, your son's name will be Isaac, which means laughter. God also promises that Ishmael will be blessed, but the covenant was still through Isaac. And then finally, in verses 23 through 27, we see Abraham's obedience to all of what's happened in this chapter so far. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in the house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now notice what happens here. He ordered that his sons would be circumcised as every male in his home as he would be. Again, I don't want to overdo it here, but this would have been painful. For a man of 99, this is not a comfortable thing happening. For his soldiers, it's not comfortable. For these, all of these men, there's over 300 of them, it's not comfortable to have this done. It's very painful. But Abraham had seen the light, where in the last chapter, he sinned because of his lack of trust. Here he suffers great pain because he's being obedient to what God says. 
His faith produced actions. And I want you to notice something else that happened too. This may be a small flyover kind of thought. But all of his men had the same procedure done on the same day. Which meant that he was defenseless. Guys aren't going to go fight after having this happen. Abraham still put his faith and trust in God. He didn't do that before, but he's doing that now. He trusted in God for his protection. He was showing that he fully trusted in the provision of God, even though he had done just about everything to ruin this relationship that he had before. Abraham found that the covenant God made was one way. Abraham could never keep his side of the bargain, no matter how hard he tried, because his sin would cause him to break it. Same goes for us today. God has promised that we can have a new heart, new hope, and the promise of eternal life if we trust in Christ for salvation. The grace of God is not dependent on what we do or how well we behave. The promises that God has made with us are just like the promises that he's made with Abraham. They go one way, which we should all be thankful for. If your salvation was based on how good you were or how much you know or how much you love someone else, how soon would it be before you fail? How soon would it be before you ruin your end of the bargain? You'd have no hope. Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith, and salvation is found in no other name but his. Not in mine, not in yours, but through Christ alone. This passage could have been taught honestly over weeks and weeks, but it's important to see how the entire chapter pushes us to Christ and how God has set his people apart both then and now. God's work in bringing us to a knowledge of our sin and our need for salvation is like the flaming torch moving through the split animals. It's something that we can't do for ourselves. Abraham was set to the side on that one. And God moved. God's power moved through those animals. If you're a Christian, be grateful that God has reached out his hand and saved you from your sin. Be grateful that you cannot lose what God has graciously given to you. Be grateful that you don't have to rest on your own goodness or your own works to keep God happy with you. God is pleased in you because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, if you're not a Christian, this sermon is strange. You might not have come here thinking that there was going to be discussion of circumcision today. Covenants, name changes. But this entire passage can be summarized as a study of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. If you don't know for certain that you've at some point in your life been broken over your sin and, and it's brought you to your knees and you've asked God to forgive you and, and in repentance and faith you said, I will trust in Christ for the rest of my life and serve him forever. If you haven't done that, respond to the call of God today. We'll stay here as long as you need. Don't leave here without being sure. God promises that he has set apart his people. Just today as, as just in the days of Abraham, many years have passed between Abraham and Christ and between Christ and us, but God still works the same. Abraham was saved in the same way we are, not through his good works, not through in his birth, not in his standing, not in how smart he was, not in how good he served, not in how many good sermons he preached or how many times he came to church or how many times he got baptized or how many people he led to the Lord. That's not how he was saved. Abraham was saved just as we are. 
he had faith in Christ. And he trusted in the future Messiah that God would keep his promises and those promises would be fulfilled in Christ. Would you pray with me?